Chris Cleave's debut novel, Incendiary, won the 2006 Somerset Maugham Award, was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, and was released as a feature film in 2008. He was born in London and spent his early years in Douala, yeah. Cameroon. That's right. Cleave studied uh, experimental psychology at Beloyal College, Oxford, and has worked as a sailor, a journalist, and an internet person. He lives in the UK with his wife and children. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. We're here to talk about your latest novel, which was shortlisted for the uh, Costa Novel Award, called Little Bee, at least over here, here being North America. You write for The Guardian. Yeah, I write a column for The Guardian on uh, uh, every Saturday. That's a column about my kids. You're not a political commentator, then? No, not at all. I am... I just observe not just my own kids, but other other people's, you know, um, friends' kids and the funny things they say and often the very revealing things they say. It's it's a light-hearted column, but I take it very seriously because you know, I think that those early childhood years are incredibly special and very revealing about you know society's attitudes to you know to growing up and how we how we train our children to be you know, little versions of us. Yeah, what that means. Yeah, I think it's yeah, I love it. It's interesting uh, in Little B, the son, who's uh, four or five, five years old, mm-hmm. Charlie, throughout most of the book wears a mask, a Batman mask, and there's a line somewhere that talks about once you have given someone your real name, a Little B isn't her true yeah. name. There's a line that um, that talks about. You know, you have to really trust someone before you give them your real name. And right. that comes from, well, Little B's upbringing and the crisis that she's had in her part of Nigeria, where she doesn't want to give her real name because that would speak quite loudly about um, her her particular ethnicity and her religious and tribal affiliations. So she takes this, this assumed name to, to protect herself, and she won't let people know her real name until she really trusts them. So she yeah. es- escapes from Nigeria and, uh, and an awful incident. It's a very, very powerful, disturbing description of, of a rape. Yeah, the, the scene that um, the book hinges around is yeah, it's set on an African beach. And it's very important for the book that the two main uh, protagonists, uh, Little B, the Nigerian girl, and Sarah, the English woman, um, they don't meet in the United Kingdom. They actually meet for the first time in Nigeria. And that's really important because I wanted this to be an unusual story about refugees. I didn't want to stick to the tired formula where you know here comes this parade of victims from sub-Saharan Africa uh, who arrive in the United Kingdom and are met by villainous you know, immigration officials and do-gooding uh, you know, charity workers and uh, almost like the, they they come as an import, freshly packaged and uh, re-digested in the UK. I wanted it to be. A, I wanted there to be much more jeopardy. I wanted there to be much more implication of the British character in the life of um, of the Nigerian character. And so it's really important that they meet in Africa. Now, well, why is that? Because it's um, neutral. It, well, no, it's not no, neutral. No, it's because it's absolutely engaged. I mean, because there there is therefore a reason, and because of the circumstances of the meeting between Little B and Sarah, there's a reason 
for Sarah not just to give up on Little B, you know, because Sarah is actually involved in the situation from which Little B is escaping. So she's she's, she's not guilt free. Yeah, she does. Yeah, uh, and that's you know that's really important um, to set up the book. It's really important to. Um, although sorry to interrupt, yeah. but although we we aren't privy to that until about halfway through the book, the book starts right. off yeah. with. Little be in the detention. Yeah, that's right. The book starts off um, two years after the incident that brought Sarah and Little B together, and they slowly work their way back to it through flashbacks and, and alternating their voices from yeah, chapter to chapter. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So Little B will tell one chapter, and then Sarah will tell the next chapter, mm-hmm. and they slowly work back through the whole first half of the book to the scene that brought them together. And I, I, I like to do that in my writing I like to let people reveal themselves at a, at a natural speed and mm-hmm. I find that makes the characters more realistic if, if you meet someone in real life you'll learn very little about them the first time you meet them the second time they might reveal a little bit more and by the tenth time you meet them they might reveal the key that unlocks them as a person you know once they trust you in a sense they'll tell you their real name well it's like Sarah uh, her, her husband commits suicide she wants to cry Mm-hmm. but it's as if she needs Little B's story yeah. to unlock that Yeah, that's exactly they, they can't even, the two women in the story can't even remind themselves about what happened to them because it was so traumatic. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but collectively they can, you know, they can find the courage to address what happened. And that gets to the core of who they are as people and then they can move on. And also accepting yeah. each other too. I mean, I think sure. that's part of the... They, they hardly know each other when Little B comes back uh, That's right. uh, to her doorstep. Yeah. And, uh, they exchange very few words on their first meeting. You know, yeah. They don't know each other at all. And slowly they do get to know each other. And, and they like what they see and they realise that they are joined together. And that they, there isn't really anything they can do to escape from each other. They need each other. Little B needs Sarah for survival and Sarah needs Little B in order to address the residual guilt that she has and about the situation that they've lived through and to deal with that. So they're kind of locked into that situation and I think that that gives the book its containment and its tension. The fact they can't just walk away, there's, there's no way they can leave that situation unresolved and they have to play it through to the end. Charlie, the little boy character, is important for that as well. I mean, he's the book's emotional heart. He's our reason to care. He's the reason that you know, it would be very bad if these two women didn't work out how, how they were both going to survive. Because, you know, we care about Charlie and we want him to survive. We want him to be happy. So do the two women. That's another element that gives the book its containment and means it doesn't just sort of fizzle off. There is a, a theme of happiness and how does one attain it? Mm-hmm. And how does one attain it then? <laughs> how does one attain happiness? A small question. I think that the characters um, in this story are a long way from being able to ask themselves that question of you know, how do they become happy. I think Little B is struggling for survival from the beginning of the book right through to the end. The only thing that she can do uh, is swim very hard against the current of life in order to survive. And she's swimming hard upstream the whole time. She hasn't even got to the point of asking herself whether she's happy. And Sarah, on the other hand, has gone way past the point uh, of asking herself whether she's happy. She's been given everything, and she ought to be happy. Right? She's been given this terrific job that she starts off being very proud of. She's, as a magazine yeah, editor. Yeah, as a magazine editor in, in London. 
yeah. of, of an edgy magazine that she helped to found herself, yeah. you know, to make a difference in the world, to sort of ally journalistic values with, you know, entertainment features. Never mm. punchy magazine. Yeah. Every every few years, one of those launches, and you know, about five years later, it's always become another fashion magazine. And yeah, but that, and that's what's happened to her. She's become another fashion magazine. She started off with high principles. She was happy. She met her husband, oh, a man that she loved a lot. Um, and it's all gone wrong for her. One compromise at a time, you know, as she's allowed, you know, her own need to, for you know physical comfort and financial security to sort of override her original programming, um, which was to to make a positive difference in the world. Little B hasn't arrived at the stage where happiness is possible yet. It's like uh, yeah. Maslow's, uh, she's, she's basically survival. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, she's food and shelter is what Little B yeah. needs. Or Whereas, just staying yeah. alive because she's being chased by... Yeah. There's a line yeah. in here that's, that repeats itself about yeah. the men coming. Yeah. Because of what the men did to her sister. Yeah. And basically chased her out of Nigeria because she'd witnessed the slaughter of a community that she lived in. That's right. Uh, I think it's really interesting that that you use um, Maslow in reference to Little B. It's true, she's right down at the bottom of that pyramid, of that hierarchy of needs. And, mm-hmm. and I think to pursue Maslow, you, you get right up to the top of his pyramid, you get things like uh, ontological security and religion and very refined yeah, yeah. notions of, of what it takes to survive, I guess, as, as a human. Or to thrive in a fulfilling life. The suburban yeah. angst yeah. that Sarah and, and Andrew, her husband, yeah. were, were dealing with. But as, as, as a sort of architectural construct, that pyramid of needs implies a sort of stability over time that I don't think is relevant in our sort of more decadent Western societies. And it implies that you get the thing built from the ground up mm. and then that's it. You've achieved happiness and it's there. It implies that it's a solid and unchanging thing. And I'd argue that, yeah, you, Little B is definitely still building that pyramid, but Sarah has built it and it's crumbled. It's not the perfect metaphor, Maslow's hierarchy, for this very modern sort of relativist existence that we have. You chase these mirages of happiness and when you arrive you realise that they weren't there. And yet, you know, it's not vain and foolish to chase these things because there isn't actually anything else to do. We don't actually need to go out and plant cassava. We, we do have to seek some kind of higher ideal. And, and that's yet, what Sarah's doing. She's, that's what she's, she's doing. She's looking for it and she never finds it. There's another need, a sexual need, a need for excitement sure, uh, yeah. that she indulges by having yeah. a, an affair. Yeah. That's as but as basic a need as food and water, or close to it. So, as you say, that yeah. pyramid is so sort of a sieve. Yeah, nicely put. Catch cascades back down yes. to the bottom of it all yeah. the time, and as do most of us. Yeah, I often get accused of uh, only writing about adulterous women. It's kind of an accident, really, rather than any particular concept that I that I'm trying to express. There, I I, I definitely write about people who are in transition. And all my work, you know, novels and short stories, it's all about someone to whom something life-changing has just happened. And the pieces are still falling when I pick up their story, and they are always trying to rebuild themselves. And these transitional people that I'm interested in reveal stuff about ourselves. And one of the symptoms of being in transition is, you know, a sexual adventurousness. 
you know, uh, an infidelity, if you like. That's one of the symptoms of what these people are doing, because actually, if you look at my work, they're also changing the place where they live. They're also changing their jobs. They're also changing their entire outlook on life. So it's just one component. But I do think it's a very revealing component. And when people are unhappy, actually, one of the very first things they do is have an affair. Yeah. You know, they'll probably have an affair before they'll consider changing their job. And you don't change your whole life at once. You, you change, you know, your partner, your job, your place of living, you know, your friendship network, your set of philosophical beliefs. And once you've done those five things, then you're a new person. But no yeah. one does it all at once. And having an affair yeah. is probably the easiest of those. It's, it's the easiest, yeah. And, and most people... And perhaps think, the most exciting. I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe. it's definitely. I agree. It's definitely the easiest. Yeah, probably the most exciting. And it's also... In many ways, the most reversible. If you change your job, you have to formally resign and go yeah. to a new job. And you, you hear of very few people who cheat on their jobs, because <laughs> guess what? People are watching. You know, you can't yeah. you can't go to the office next door and actually start working there for a bit without formally resigning, burning your bridges, and moving to the next one. Whereas actually, yeah. human relationships are a little more forgiving. They go to Nigeria. The yeah, they, they want to patch it up. They go to Nigeria up. to patch exactly. up their relationship yeah. and. You know, the chances are that if the cataclysmic thing hadn't happened on the beach, then the story of Sarah and Andrew would be just one more suburban story of a couple who had a few marital difficulties a few years back but patched them up. Mm. And that's what people do. I mean, quite often people will get themselves right to the brink of the precipice, frighten themselves and then come back. But then there's trust too, which is so difficult to rebuild. Sure, yeah. And trust the theme that you, you deal with that we've touched on feeling comfortable enough to actually reveal yourself. Yeah. Most people never get to that point yeah. with their partners. I'm convinced of this. I'm amazed when couples who are in their 70s suddenly <laughs> divorce or, or realise something about the other person. I'm amazed how many layers of secrets are contained in even the most apparently easy-to-explain lives. That's what I love about being a writer is that you can peel back the layers of people and get closer and closer to something that explains them explains who they are and explains why people are so strong and resilient you know people aren't completely plastic people do have a, a real course that they're setting through life often it's, you can't really work out what that course is until you've known them for a long time as an that, individual you can't really you don't see a pattern until you've actually lived it and looked back on it sure yeah oh yeah we narrate our own stories in in retrospect glorify ourselves and glamorize ourselves and, and organize ourselves and exactly yeah. and organize ourselves and you don't know you know whether what we're living now will in the future narrative of our lives be considered to be a harmless back eddy or whether that will be narrated as you know one of the major currents of our life i think you're exactly right we make sense of it in retrospect well, the interesting thing, too, about storytelling, and you make the point, first of all, that and I think it's a, it's a very good, interesting point, that these people who are seeking asylum, they, as opposed to a novelist, it's life and death for them. They have to get that story and tell it in such a way that it's believable That's right. for them to live or just to, to be accepted or to yeah. stay in, in England, in this yeah. case. Otherwise, they get sent back to a death sentence. Too right, yeah. I think that's a good point. I mean, as a storyteller, I'm completely in awe of the ability of people with a real story to tell it. Well, um, and a real motivation yeah. to yeah. tell it in a way that's believable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's the Scheherazade thing, or you know, it's this idea that you know you're literally going to die yes, yes. <laughs> if you don't if you don't get this story told till the end and in a convincing way. You know, I've I've met people who have only survived because they managed to convince people of what had happened to them. For example, if you're a, a refugee 
an asylum seeker. You come to the UK, uh, your asylum application is going to be heard by, you know, a fairly junior civil servant who's had some training. You know, they might be able to recognise, you know, or point to four different African countries on a map in the right order. They may have some concept of what refugees from sub-Saharan Africa have gone through. But there's generally a climate of disbelief. Their stories aren't generally believed. That's how, you know, these officials are trained to not believe the mm. stories and to so assume cool. that any document you have is false, yeah. any story you have is inflated. And so, you know, you come as a woman who's been raped, right? You might have, you might not want to tell that story, right? You might not want to. Uh, you certainly might not want to tell it to a spotty young man from the British Home Office, right, <laughs> who doesn't believe you and mm. is openly mocking you. So in, in the face of that climate, you have to tell a story make the other person sympathise with you and make them believe you of, of the truth of your life. I mean, those, those people who have their asylum applications accepted have succeeded in telling the story. They're and survivors, they're survivors. They're the and ones it's, who are yeah. most, as you say, most resilient, most imaginative, most intelligent, most exactly. resourceful. Yeah. yeah, not only have they arrived at the point of being able to tell their story, but they've told their story in a way that has enabled them to survive. They're, they're incredible people. I mean, an asylum seeker who's come from, you know, one of the conflicts like the one I describe in the book, well, quite often they've walked across huge tracts of Africa through other war zones. Uh, a really interesting source book for this is called Human Cargo, uh, mm-hmm. A Journey Among Refugees by mm-hmm. um, Caroline Moorhead. And she, she talks about how people, you know, walk or amazing sort of odysseys that they have across Africa and they often get to somewhere like Cairo which is a big sort of clearing house for mm. refugees and they might work a menial job there for years yeah. in order to save up enough money to pay a smuggler to take them into southern Europe they'd better choose the right smuggler as well because mm-hmm. a lot of them will, will literally take the money and then throw the refugees into the sea as soon as they get offshore yeah. and yeah. so you need to not only be hugely resilient hugely patient hugely determined but you need to be a great judge of character even before you get to the UK, at which point you need to be very good at telling your story. Yeah. So as a novelist, you know, I, who, you know, I tell stories, I'm interested in the structure of stories and the voice that people use and the way they present themselves. And you've, you've been able to interview a lot of these great storytellers. Well, um, not, part of the not, not, not many, no. actually. Um, I didn't interview many refugees and asylum seekers. What I mostly... Um, did was was spoke with people who work with them. My favourite interview actually was with a developmental psychiatrist okay. who actually interviews the children that we detain. We, you know, we we detain children who've committed no crime, you know, who've come from a war zone, who are suffering from post traumatic stress. Well, we put them in prison, and the most revealing interview I had was actually with the psychiatrist who works with these children. That's right. That's one of the concerns too, isn't it? That yeah. the children are being I mean, there's a couple of others, too. There's a profit motive that uh, that's involved in the detention centres are run by um, private sector. That's right, yeah. this yeah. is. I was really shocked to discover this, and most people are shocked when they discover it. And this is why you've written the novel, then. Is it based, it's sort of based on you're shocked, and you want other people to be as shocked so that, what, eventually there'll be a groundswell to change mm. the system? I assume well, that's an ultimate I objective. No, I don't. I don't write because I think I can change anything. I, think, I, I write because I believe in the truth of stories. I believe in the emotional truth of them. And I believe that you can do something in fiction 
that you don't have the space to do in print news. Although you could have done it in a non-fiction book. I could have done, but there are a lot of good non-fiction books about refugees, Mm. and none of them get the readership that they deserve. And people who are already interested in the idea of a refugee will go out and buy a book about them. But most people aren't. Most people's eyes glaze over when you say asylum seeker. Actually, their stories are the most interesting stories on earth. And by definition, these are the people who, who transgress, who, who cross boundaries that shouldn't be crossed emotionally. Yeah, I mean, they're incredible people. And I, I wanted to tell the story through fiction because I think that it has an emotional truth to it that's more compelling. I don't think I can change things, but I, I think what I can do is make people interested in these people again because we've lost interest in the most interesting people on earth i think that's tragic i think it's a monument to our hubris we've become so insular and we're we're watching pallid imitations of life on reality television um rather than looking outwards and seeing what who are actually the most interesting people i'm just trying to make them interesting again and then it's up to it's up to readers it's up to people you know what they do with the information but i'm just saying guess what these people are fascinating and we should be more interested in their fates and we certainly shouldn't be treating them as some kind of cash crop that, that we can detain for, for, for our own pleasure and satisfaction and for the profit of you know, secretive multinational organisations who run these detention centres for profit. So it's, it seems like so, there's a misalignment. Uh, you know, the general public, as you've said, is, is fascinated by this shit that you see on on television these shows where people are stuck on desert islands and yeah. yes they're trying to survive when they're they're misplacing their their awe or their respect or their attention or they're just wasting their time i mean it's just absolute onanism it's mm. unbelievable what people are interested in on television but and what, i just think that but they uh, are though i think that's the mm. sad point you, you mm. can't really force them to be oh no i'm not, but, I'm not but what you're doing yeah. is using a you can persuade tools. them, you can yes. persuade, and this is my whole thing about being a storyteller, you can yeah. persuade people to open up a little bit more. And I think if you give people interesting stories, then they will come to them. It's, mm. You know, people aren't dumb, they're, they're mm. just fed crap uh, to the point where they've come to accept that as normal. Actually, nearly everyone I meet is fantastic and better than that and and could be having more fun in their lives if they open themselves up to more stuff i hope i'm not being patronizing when i say that stuff on tv is a bunch of a bunch of crap because well i just think it is and i think people are i think people are better than that i think readers deserve better than that certainly i'm trying to give them stories that are about real life that i'm so committed to realism i'm so committed to saying well look you know Let's not forget that reality is interesting. Let's not forget that there are people out there who have lives that are indescribably different from our own and from whom we could learn. Instead, we lock them up and send them back to their deaths. You know, what, a, what a terrible, terrible indictment on us. You know, how, how difficult that will be to explain you know, to our children if we don't stand up and try and resist that in some way now. Nicely put. I'm speaking with uh, Chris Cleave, who is the author of Little Bee, published in Canada by... By Bond Street Books. And in the States, it's as part of Random House. It seems to me that what you're trying to do is extend 
the audience for a, a serious topic. Yeah, absolutely. And you're using yeah. fiction and your storytelling yeah. skills as a way of getting people to think about important, serious topics. That's really just, nicely put, yeah. Simple as that. That's all I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to say that yeah, real life is interesting. Mm-hmm. And if, if you if you assume that your writer that your readers are smart, which I do, um, then it lets you write at a really high level and enjoy it and make it fun and exciting and compelling and that literary fiction should be exciting and it should be something that everyone wants to read. Well, it should also, I think, uh, provide uh, some sort of moral uh, life lesson as well. Oh, oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm definitely not trying to provide a moral lesson. I'm I'm trying to provide an example of, of a life lived in extreme situations and then the reader yeah I mean it presents a, I definitely present a moral challenge mm. right and then but but there's no lesson that I draw from it and I don't you I, don't but I think that it's required on the part of the reader once they've read this book to think seriously about what they're doing in a world where this sort of activity takes place yeah absolutely or not doing absolutely I, I mean my challenge I guess to the reader is to say, well, look, this is an issue in which you can't declare yourself to be a non-combatant, right? The, we live in a world where you you have to engage now, and you have to choose a side. You know, you have to choose you have to choose compassion, or you have to choose closure. Are you going to close yourself off to the world and say, I'm okay, my family are okay, and screw everyone else, or are you going to take a more long-term view and say, I actually care about my children's world too? Uh, in which case we've got to start to work out um, some of the differences that we have between the so-called developed world and the so-called developing world. Because guess what? At the moment, that gulf isn't getting any narrower. And I, I, I think it's an issue on which you can't be neutral. And I think you can only be neutral if you're really ignoring the issue. And I don't think it's safe to ignore anymore. So that's some... I, I like to get people to engage with it. Very good. Well, you certainly got me engaged with it, and I... And I wish you uh, all the best of luck in getting uh, millions of others engaged. Thank you. Uh, that's Thanks. great. Well, I just hope they'll enjoy it if they read it, really. I mean, that's. And I think they should turn this into I a do. movie. I mean, I really do. I can, I can see it right now. It's been speaking of ways yeah. of getting larger audiences to, to look at this serious sort of issue. You know, if someone wants to make a movie of it, I'd be delighted. I'm talking to a couple of people at the moment. Mm-hmm. And if that happens, that's great. But for, for me, I'm going to stick to writing novels because that's the thing you know that's the thing I love I I like the connection that I have with readers I like the just the technicalities of putting a novel together fascinate me Mm -hmm. I love doing the research and then I love the the, you know the the mechanism of a novel and how intricate it is and I love going to my shed and tinkering (laughs) with it until it works you know that's you know I'm going to stick with writing novels I just love it very good well thanks again thank you very much okay great